Welcome to the Art and Life Podcast. I'm your host, Taylor Gallegos. My intention with this experiment is to inspire hope and inspiration in your creative pursuits. Follow along as I interview artists, makers, entrepreneurs, and creatives from all walks of life. Listen while you work, listen while you create, listen while you dream up the next breakthrough idea. It's possible to make a life from your art, skill, or craft, whatever that may be. These interviews are evidence of that fact. If you enjoy what you hear, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Share this with your friends, family, and all those creative people you know out there. Now, let's dive into this concept we call creativity. Welcome back, my friends. Here we are, another episode of the Art and Life podcast, and we have a true artist, a creative human being in the house today. Well, the metaphorical house, because we're over the phone, because this is 2020 and COVID-19 is a thing, but, you know, Frank Golbeck is in the metaphorical house today, and this one is a real treat. Frank makes mead. Mead is a drink made from honey with an alcohol percentage that uh, will just have you feeling really nice and lovely. And um, yeah, Frank enlightens us about all sorts of fun things. I love talking to Frank about all sorts of things like bees and honey and... uh, metaphysical type things. He is a dreamer. He's a believer in the magic of the world. And um, yeah, you're going to see all of that in this podcast. So thanks again for joining. Definitely share this out with anybody you know that is creative. Have them subscribe. Are you subscribed? Do it. It's going to be fun. Join along for the ride. I'm just interviewing human beings who are amazing and recording it. And then uh, you get to hear that and get inspired to do whatever it is that you do. What the world needs more is creativity and love. I feel like love is baked into creativity. It's a a presence. It's a focus. It's a positive energy. And uh, that's what I'm basing my life around. Feel free to join me. It feels great. Um, Yeah, that's it. Without further ado, Frank Golbeck. Welcome, everybody, to the podcast. I'm your host, Taylor G. And with me today is a really good friend of mine, Frank Golbeck. Now, Frank is just a wonderful soul, and I can't wait to share him with you. So, Frank, thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure, Taylor. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Definitely. Um, okay, so why don't you start out, tell us who you are, where you're from, how you got to here, and what you do. Thanks. Um, so I'm Frank Rivers Goldbeck. I am from Southern California. I uh, grew up down here, live here now. Um, spent pretty much most of my life in California. Got to go to school in Northern California and then moved down to San Diego for four years in the Navy. And then... Um, Got into mead making, so uh, moved up to North County, San Diego, and uh, 
run Golden Coast Mead out of Oceanside um, with a business partner and um, a good team of people and have a family and uh, a little community property and life is good. <laughs> yeah, nice. It definitely is. Um, so, okay. Now I'll bet that 90% of the people that you talk to probably don't know what mead is at first. Uh, probably 99%. No, uh, it, it is probably one out of 10 that does know. And then one out of a hundred has probably had it before. So yeah, we've got our work ahead of us, but it's fun to introduce people to mead and be happy to introduce your listeners to it. If that would be helpful. Yes, I think it would be. Go for it. Uh, okay, cool. Um, so mead is the alcohol you get when you ferment. Honey. The mead has a D so, at the end. It's M. That's right. M-E-A-D. Yes, M-E-A-D. So it's arguably the oldest alcohol in the world because our hunter-gatherer ancestors were probably finding a beehive that had flooded and spontaneously fermented because honey occurred in the wild, rainwater occurred in the wild, and yeast, which is just a fungus that floats around in the air, occurs in the wild. So as back uh, as far back as 9,000 years ago, 7,000 B.C., there's archaeological evidence of fermented beverages from honey. But... Um, the guy that discovered those, Dr. Patrick McGovern uh, out of the University of Pennsylvania, he um, speculates that like this was just when our ancestors had pottery. And so he's able to find the pochards, you know, the broken pieces of potter pottery that they drank out of or stored their alcohol in. And then he finds the dust and he scrapes the dust off of the pots. And then he goes and microanalyzes that and is able to kind of reconstruct what uh, the fermented beverage that would have been held in those pots probably was based off of the chemical signature of the dust on the uh, pottery. So he's got hard physical evidence of people making alcohol out of honey 9,000 years ago in China, but he speculates this uh, magic bag theory um, where people were our hunter-gatherer ancestors were coming out of Africa like 50 to 100,000 years ago and they carried with them like wine skins like leather bags and they would throw whatever they could ferment in there fruit and probably honey as they found it and mix it with water and that bag uh, bubbled away and transformed that mix of fruit and water and honey and yeast into a pleasant drink that probably helped them survive um, by introducing gut microbiome organisms that helped the people as they migrated adapt to a new environment. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's so a huge see, piece right there. There's so much. I mean, and then it goes on from there that like need shows up in five out of seven continents and in indigenous traditions. Um, so except for Australia and Antarctica, Every other continent has an indigenous mead tradition and we get to kind of bring it back and celebrate it and connect people with it and all the magic that goes with it. Yeah. So like the Vikings, right? They drank it. Yeah. That's probably the most commonly known um, culture in our culture. But like in Ethiopia, there's a mead tradition that goes back to like maybe time immemorial, you know, like in Ethiopia, of a form of Judaism is practiced that like people from Israel are like, that's not really Judaism, but the people in Ethiopia are like, yo, 
Solomon came here and hung out with Queen Sheba. Like the Judaism we practice is King Solomon's version of Judaism. So like um, they drink meat at these community bars where uh, they play piano and make up songs about their neighbors and they all drink it out of one central kind of uh, vessel with long straws. Um, and like, maybe that's what our ancestors were doing a long time ago, which is pretty cool. Um, Poland has a huge mead tradition that goes a long ways back. Uh, it's mentioned in the Rig Veda, the like ancient Hinduism, uh, almost Old Testament, um, where Krishna, or excuse me, Vishnu walks across the universe and in his highest footstep, there's a spring of mead. So that's like what makes the stars. Um, huh. I could go on. Uh, in the Viking tradition, Odin, who's like the Zeus of the Viking pantheon, he drinks the mead that's um, the blood of the ogres that are there at the creation of the universe. And he says, a drink I took of the magic mead and I began to know and to be wise, to grow and to weave poems. <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. And like the native um, Mexicans were making mead out of the honey from the stingless melipona bee and they called it balche and it was often included in ceremony and like the gods would come down with the people. Um, so Africa, Asia, Europe, Central America, um, down into Southern South America as well. Um, so you get you get some major coverage. It's pretty cool. That's really awesome. And so then now you're bringing it back. Ah, uh, well, I, yeah, you know, it's, um, my grandpa used to make it. And when I was little, I, he had a little winery when he retired from growing apples. And I remember being like eight years old and this grumpy old guy walking into the tasting room in the winery. And, uh, my grandpa pours in this like little one ounce taster of this golden drink. And I see this grumpy guy, like, drink it. And goes, hmm. My grandpa goes, you like that? You want another one? And the guy's like, yeah. So my grandpa pours in another one. And then, like, after two small little, like, thimble tasters full, this guy's, like, laughing and smiling at me and asking me about my day. I'm like, grandpa, you just transformed this guy. Like, what is this magic potion? <laughs> so... <laughs> So, like, to say that we're bringing it back, I think is, you know, not entirely the whole story. It's more like we're kind of remembering it and connecting other people with that remembering. Mm. Nice. Yeah, that's a nice way to look at it. I like that. Um, yeah. Which is cool. I, I, I mean, that's a, that just makes me think of a little side note of, like, making art um, and how the thought or the way of saying it now that I am most comfortable with is that like the art is something that comes through me. You know, I'm, mm. I'm the vessel, I'm the tool that I've, you know, I've trained so that I can do different things and understand different things. But like, uh, you know, the energy of art is, is sort of undescribable and uh, is, is bigger and deeper and to say that like I'm the artist and I do all this and I think this and it's just like so I uh and me oriented which um definitely might not be the case and kind of closes off the signal for that greater thing to come through us right yeah and what you're talking about is like this energy of that's like just gone through history and just like been 
been passed down through the the ages and now you're the conduit yeah yeah and one of and our vision is to empower a bunch of other conduits so that we can relocalize the food and alcohol systems through mead and connect people with their place in a really special way because we like to say that every sip of mead um, at 12 percent alcohol the bees have to visit 10,000 flowers to make the honey for one sip so that honey reflects the place that the bees were visiting those flowers and that mead reflects that place so if we carry our efforts forward we hopefully will see mead makers across the country and the world sourcing honey from local beekeepers and producing meads that can't be reproduced anywhere else and so the consumers who go and buy that mead are like paying for the pollination of ecosystems and helping to regenerate those ecosystems. Totally. Which is, uh, it's interesting. So I interviewed a gentleman a couple podcast interviews ago, and he is a waterfowl hunter and he mm. takes people around the world, um, duck hunting. And so we, we talked about how hunting when it's done properly and consciously, uh, it, it creates a commodity out of the natural wildlife. And in doing so, like it helps like sustain that wildlife because it creates, because like, I mean, we live in a capitalist world where um, this is just the way that things work. And by creating like creating a commodity out of something um, actually is like the best thing for it. And it's interesting yeah there there's such an edge in that conversation, right? because definitely like, the world as it is versus the world that we want to make and share and uh, the commodification of nature is like always dangerous, but if we don't create a value a fix a value to it, and that someone's gonna come and develop homes on it, you know <laughs> right <laughs> or tear up nature and plant monocultures in the case of most alcohol right like beer and wine are produced by huge fields of one crop where they spray chemicals to kill everything else so can we create a market that incentivizes the regeneration of a place and in duck hunting they've preserved a ton of wetlands because of ducks unlimited and the demand for hunting so could we see something similar where the demand for honey drives beekeepers to go into contract on land and give money to landowners so that they plant more flowers and that then sequesters more carbon into the soil, builds more soil, retains groundwater, all these cool ecological outcomes, increased biodiversity, increased bee habitat, increased bee populations. So it's a win, 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 win. Absolutely. That's uh Yeah, and, and I, I totally agree that it's very sad that this is the situation, that we can't just appreciate nature for what it is and leave it that way. And it has to be commoditized. Uh, I don't know if that's a word or not, but it has to go Commodified. that direction <laughs> um, or else, uh, yeah, it's it, people just don't see the value in it. Yeah, I, well, I so I think like Burning Man is kind of – a recent experiment, social experiment in what is possible beyond that. And I think 
art exists to make us question those things and test these things and like ask what if, right? And I know that you're doing a great living selling art because you found your niche, like do these wonderful murals, right? And like light up the lives of the people that will see this mural. And could you do that without getting paid? You know, it would be a much different lifestyle. I guess you could, but it would, you got to pay for your food and rent somehow, right? Right. Yeah, same here. Like, I would make mead. In fact, this is one of my favorite parts of, of the mead story is like, Teresa, my wife, asked me when I was in the Navy what I would do if I had all the time, money, and energy in the world. And I was like, make mead and share it with people? And she was like, figure out how to make a living and let's do that. So I think in a way, the capitalist com- uh, structure enables you to choose your own adventure. And if it creates value for other people, and then you can get a system in place to reliably exchange that value, you can create the resources you need to meet all the needs that you have other than the thing you would spend all your time and energy doing if you had all of those things, right? Yep. So it's kind of rad. Like, yeah, it's a big Faustian bargain in that we can't just be like parts of the ecosystem, you know, expressing consciousness as humans uh, within that ecosystem. Like we are creators within that ecosystem. So we've got to choose what we're going to spend our time creating. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a, I read this book called Feral not too long ago. And uh, one thing that they talked about was rewilding. Mm. And this concept was really cool. And I really liked the idea because like, and it reminds me of my travels in Europe, even though Europe isn't fully like rewilded, but what it seems like what they do there is there's a much more like, okay, we have city and then we have like farmlands and then open lands. And it would be like, it would be interesting to like consolidate things a little bit more. And so that then, and then like let the wild be like fully rewilded. Um, you know, cause like, as you say that, like it would be nice to just be humans being humans, expressing consciousness as a human in nature. But like, what would that even look like anymore? Like, yeah. 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 Like who, like, I don't really want to go back to living in a straw hut you know, or like living in a, in a cave, um, you know, fending for my own against like wild animals. (laughs) Yeah. Well, there's a cool book uh, that I've popped open called Tending the Wild, which talks about the indigenous Californian people and how the word wilderness didn't really exist in their languages because humans just interacted with nature and that's the way it was. There was no other way where nature was left alone and was wild. So what the European settlers encountered when they came to California was actually the result of hundreds to thousands, maybe 13,000 years in Southern California of human uh, indigenous uh, habitation of Southern California. So like 13,000 years, they would manage wildlands with brush fires and with seed harvesting and seed spreading. And so like they would set a fire somewhere 
And then they would come back in a little while and they would spread seed everywhere. And it would become these grazing grounds for the game animals that they hunted. And um, they would trim different um, bushes and coppice them in ways to increase the yields of their fruits and roots that they would harvest and all kinds of practices. So that idea of untouched wilderness um, is kind of something that seems to have been developed by our industrialized culture that like before people were separate from nature, they interacted with nature. And so all nature was touched by the humans that were there. And then when we moved out of that nature, this concept of wild nature cropped up because it was a way to explain like places where people are not. Right. And I mean, in that model that you're talking about, it's more of a, like uh, a human integration with nature with it where the humans are you know they're acting upon the land to do to help themselves and get like higher yields and things but they're not they're not completely like just taking it out and developing it into like a human habitation um yeah it's cool it's like a stewarding of the land and living in that land it's not being like this is humanity and that is wilderness. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so I really like to hear you talk about bees. <laughs> why don't, why don't you uh, talk about bees a little bit? Yeah. So bees are mind blowingly wonderful. Um, I got to, I got to start keeping bees about, 12 years ago and doing so just opened my eyes to how wonderful they are and I put my hands in the hive and when you put your hands into a beehive you know a beehive is full of like 60 to 100,000 bees Um, it's like you're touching another universe and when you start to learn about bees, you start to learn that they do see another reality. Their eyes are these compound eyes with like a thousand lenses on each eye. So they're taking in light from like a thousand different directions. And then they have directional eyes set in from those big round eyes that we're used to on the bee. And those kind of help them see this like kind of binocular tunnel while they're taking in light from all around them as if there's like holograph projections of reality that they can see so when you and they can smell and taste things that we can't even at at levels of threshold that we can't even perceive so they often like see smells you know like the ester and polyphenolic chemicals that make smells off of a flower will like come off as color and they see on levels of spectrum of light that we don't see at all. Um, I think it's beyond the UV spectrum and beyond the infrared spectrum. They can see more colors than we do. So they're flying around in this world where like they've got this kind of like central binocular vision and then everything else is like this multi-dimensional hologram projection where smells are colors. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And like the plants entice them um 
like when certain bees get close to certain flowers, those flowers will respond by putting out more nectar or changing color to the bee to like indicate that we're ready for you to come pollinate us. Because bees and plants like co-evolved. Um, Rudolf Steiner, who's the theorist behind biodynamic agriculture and Waldorf schools, and he was kind of like a Nikola Tesla, like people would just have him come and talk and he would just like go on and on about all kinds of radical esoteric stuff, um, but also very practical stuff. He gave more lectures on bees than he did on um, education or agriculture, which went on to make Waldorf schools and biodynamic agriculture systems. So like he was talking about bees in one of his first lectures, he says, bees can be considered the love life of plants because they're the way that plants reproduce and share genetic information. There's wind pollination too, but bee pollination is way more efficient and complete. Um, so the first flowering plant gave out a flower, but there was no other plant to receive the genetic information from that flower. And so that plant died. Then who knows how many thousands of years later, another flowering plant evolved and it wanted to share its genetic information, but then it died. So somehow at some point, two flowering plants happened to pop up in proximity enough to one another to be able to exchange genetic information. And along the way, little insects that kind of ate everything started to specialize in this like super nutrient dense pollen. And the plants that were able to entice the insects and then exchange genetic information on the backs of these insects were a lot more successful. And so a whole relationship between pollinators and flowering plants evolved to the point that you now have like certain species of bees that are evolved to pollinate certain kinds of plants. For instance, the bumblebee, which we know and love here in North America, can like land on a tomato plant or a squash plant and crawl into the flower and then detach her wings from her flight muscles and then just fire off her flight muscles so that she's buzzing the whole flower. And that flower will release something like 10,000 times more pollen than when a normal European bee that can't dislocate her um, flight muscles from her wings gets in there and tries to pollinate. So it's like so magic. I keep going. I mean, the where do you want to go? <laughs> I mean, that right there for a second is unbelievable. So they basically uh, like take their wings off as if they're like a jacket that you just wear around and then and then uh, shake everything up, get a, get a little more action out of it. <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh, and like honey, like honey, you know, so, so there's solitary bees like bumblebees and carpenter bees and mason bees. And like that's where the female is, the queen and the worker. She goes out, builds, finds a hive site, builds the hive, um, goes out, forages a bunch of food, stores it up in the hive, then lays the eggs, then feeds the babies. And then all of those babies grow up and become queens or mates, drones. Um, but in a social bees hive, like the honeybee, and there's, I think, five other species of social bee throughout the world, the, there's only one fertile female that lays eggs. Um, so in a European honeybee hive, which we're 
relying on in the meat business at this point but also you know that's the species that makes all the honey that you buy in the store for the most part uh if you buy melipona honey um they're just super hard to find then that's a different case but in the case of majority of the honey in the world it comes from apis mellifera which is the european honeybee um, which isn't actually native to north america but anyways um, the queen will lay something like 800 to 2,000 eggs in a day. And she's attended like 24-7 by these brand new nurse bees who come out and feed her um, from these special glands that produce this special compound called royal jelly, which keeps her totally nourished and producing um, eggs like all day long. And I've heard, I haven't read the studies about it, but apparently if you feed royal jelly to mammals, female mammals, they'll go into um, ovulation, which is pretty wild. Um, so more magical stuff there. But um, how they produce honey is super rad. So a worker bee will live like six weeks um, during spring, summer, and fall. Over winter, they'll live something like 10 to 14 weeks. But over spring, summer, and fall, the workers are living for six weeks. In the first four weeks in the hive, they have different jobs inside the hive from when they first emerge and they're tending the queen to when they're tending the babies to when they're building comb to when they're guarding the hive, when they're receiving nectar from their sisters and going up and making honey with it. Um, they even ferment inside the hive. They'll mix nectar with pollen and it'll ferment away, making bee bread, which they fed, feed to the baby bees. Oh, my um, God. <laughs> I know. <laughs> So there's just so many cool things going on. But by the time they've reached that end of four weeks, they've kind of lived, you know, two-thirds of their useful life to the hive. So if they die when they're outside of the hive, it's like all that productivity won't be lost. Wow. So by the time they're four weeks old, they're able to kind of leave the hive and go foraging. And they'll fo forage for water to cool down the hive. And they'll forage for pollen because that's their protein source. And they'll forage for nectar, which is the sugar that plants emit to entice the bees to come pollinate them and so that nectar is their carbohydrate and um i mean it's super cool right the plants are gathering sunlight and carbon dioxide from the air and water from their roots in the earth and synthesizing the carbon dioxide and h2o into c6 h1206 sugar and the plants are secreting that sugar through their roots to feed the the microbes that live in the soil that help the plants get the minerals that they can't break down themselves and that provides food for the um, mycorrhiza of the mushrooms and the other microscopic bacteria that live in the soil and so it's a symbiosis between the plant and the soil and then they're also providing that sugar to the um, fruit which entices the mammals and other things and birds that eat the fruit to go spread the seeds and then they're putting that sugar into the flower um so to entice the bees and the bees are gathering that up and over the course of her life one honeybee will make about one tenth of a teaspoon of honey um and i used to at one point remember how many miles a bee would have to fly to create a pound of honey but it's like two million flower visits to make one pound of honey <laughs> So, so the numbers on it are pretty incredible, but this is how life is created. You know, plants are the food for everything and sunlight is the food for the plants. Um, 
this balance is maintained and the bees are a fundamental part of it. And then the honey that they produce and then bring back to the hive, they, they take the nectar from the flower and they give it to their sisters when they get back to the hive and the sister uh, takes it up to the honey cells. And then she um, deposits the honey, the, the nectar into a cell and she stands over it and fans it to evaporate the water out of it. And as she deposits it, she adds an enzyme to it that stabilizes it because if this enzyme meets water, it becomes like an OH molecule like hydrogen peroxide. So it'll kill uh, spoilage microbes. And so then you'll get this food inside the hive that never spoils. It's like the only natural food that does not spoil the honey that was in the Egyptian pyramids because it was kept in airtight containers could still be eaten like 2000 years after it was discovered. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Holy jeez. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes it's like art is figuring out how to present all of that in a bite-sized like chunk for people, you know? Right. Right. Well, and I'm sure that like I'm sure that you want to express this to people all the time and like like I knowing you, like I see you all the time. Like it feels like this uh, exuberance, I'll say, um, for honey and for bees and for mead. Like it's uh, it's just like bursting at your seams all the time. Thanks, man. Yeah, I mean, it's just the world is suffused with magic for those who have the eyes to look. Right? Someone said that. <laughs> That's nice. Um, yeah, why don't you uh, tell me a little bit about your perspective on that wonderful festival out in the desert called Burning Man? Oh, man. I've only been twice. First time I went was uh, with two coworkers. Well, one coworker and her boyfriend from the meadery. And, um, oh, gosh, to be able to share a gift, right? Like, um, I got to show up with mead on my tricycle on a beach cruiser tricycle with like a little pole cart behind it and we put a couple of kegs of mead on the back of it and a jockey box which is a cool little cooler device that you put ice in it and then uh you can drive around and pour mead for people um so had mobile mead bar on the playa which is this giant flat desert where all kinds of wonderful art is happening and people are just like fully in the present moment and because of these 10 principles of burning man including uh radical self-reliance and radical self-expression and um radical gifting uh inclusivity all these like just transformational ways of being and everyone that's there has done work to get there because you can't just show up there and freeload. It is just like a hostile environment. So if people have made it there, you know that they put in work to get there. And it's a you hostile, also realize, like natural environment. Yeah, natural environment. Thank you. Like it's dry and hot and intense. So if people have done the preparation to get there, you're for me, I didn't feel like there was any risk of people just freeloading and me giving away more than I could sustain. Also, a weird thing is like you always plan to bring food there, but your like appetite gets way reduced, um, which I guess has something to do with the amount of water uh, in your system that the desert sucks out of you. 
so you're less hungry. So you realize that you've brought like two times the amount of food than you need. And so a sense of just generosity kind of exists throughout the place. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely aware that there's like a dependence on Walmart and Amazon. Like if it were not for Walmart and Amazon, it would be a much different experience uh, at Burning Man. So that is what it is. But that being said, as an experiment and a proof of concept that when people get together and share these agreements and realize that this whole thing is put on by volunteers, like there is a staff that coordinates the bathrooms and kind of the permits with the BLM, Bureau of Land Management, like the giant 60-foot woman made of steel that's like standing in the middle of the desert looking at the spot where the sun rises and like if you stand still and watch her long enough you realize she's this giant statue that can breathe and she like lights up as she breathes like that was done by volunteers hmm. they'll take it down and like the you know so many of the art pieces are just made for that one moment and then they'll be burnt down and so to be able to go there and offer things and know that people that you offer it will never know who you are or, you know, it's non-commodification. So they don't know about your company, but they just know that there was a dude who was like joyfully sharing this gift. And that dude was sustained and supported by hundreds of other people who are joyfully sharing their gifts. And so life becomes about that. It becomes about joyfully sharing gifts. And that's a pretty cool thing to have life be about. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a really cool thing to have life be about. I like it. I, I feel like, you know, as you're saying that, a thought popped into my head of like what I, what I got from it. And one thing that I have received from the experience is, is just seeing what's possible. You know, like it, it's like such an experiment in so many different ways that everybody just like throws spaghetti at the wall, metaphorically mm. speaking. And, mm -hmm. and you and people experiment in like, in, you know, pushing an idea to the limit or making it super huge or super tiny or super like whatever. It's like things are just pushed. And then from there, when you come back to the real world, um, it like your mind has completely expanded in terms of what's possible and then uh reasons for why things can't happen sort of are like you know shown for the the falsity that they might be mm, and i i love that sense of um you know at, at burning man like our our normal day-to-day -day life that's non-burning man is like called the default world and like the experiences that we have at Burning Man are real. They're as real as they get. And so when serendipity and like divine intervention happen in just uncanny ways, and then like you start to talk to other people about the insane divine intervention serendipity that happens to them. Like for me, I'm kind of forced to conclude like maybe that is the art is when that spirit that is greater than any one individual enters the field and starts to arrange things like that's the point of the art and and that can be brought to our normal life um, if we set the agreements up with the people that we're operating our normal life with and we create the space for that to happen 
I like that. And, uh, you know, set the agreements up. Those are like very pro-social agreements where that if, if everybody acts in these ways, it's going to be good for everybody. And, um, not just in the ways that we like physically bump into each other or like physically interact, but what I do in terms of like the creation of art is going to be something for you to look at and for you to experience. And like, so we're all, that's that's one great thing about it is it's a festival for people by for the people by the people it's not like there's a uh a lineup of bands and there's a grandstand that is like set up for you for everybody to like be sort of spoon-fed it's like the whole thing happens by everybody making it happen and and it's cool because as as uh that thought's coming up it like it was reminding me of a beehive and like yeah. you know the pro-social nature of a beehive everybody's doing their thing working together and then they end up making this beautiful honey yeah man i mean when you get into the esoteric side of beekeeping like the song of increase by jacqueline friedman where she like channels the bees and like you know she's been keeping bees for decades up in washington but then like this book is about her conversations with her beehives and like asking why things are made certain ways and so it gets pretty out there but um one of the things that i love is like her talking about the bees are keeping a library of the ecosystem that they're a part of so every nectar every pollen that they gather is like an artifact of that space and time and so like it's pretty wild she talks about when the bees fly off out of sight of humans they enter this like multiverse (laughs) (laughs) and so where they spread their song creates increase if the bees are healthy and it ties places together as hives kind of knit this weave over an ecosystem and a place. And so all these hives thriving together creates this song that spreads out to all of the different um, organisms that exist within it. Wow. Which, which is cool. Cause that makes me think of um, quantum physics and yes. like the role of the observer and how, when you're not observing, then the uh, electrons can be in multiple places at one time. Like bees could be these like, next dimensional travelers that we when we look at them we're like oh look there's a bee it's like a three-dimensional creature cruising through space and then we look away and all of a sudden it's like everywhere at once yeah yeah so she kind of makes this point like bees and humans have been together for a long time and like humans are at this point where they need to make a huge progression in understanding their connectedness to everything that they're a part of and as we witness bees die in these large numbers like it's not so much about the bees it's about us changing you know it's not about us changing how we deal with the bees and trying to prop them up it's about us changing our whole way of relating with everything because the bees are gonna be fine like earth is gonna be fine earth is gonna make it through this time it's just will humanity and i i think that burning man kind of is an example of a way that we could make it if people show up with those agreements and that willingness to create and share gifts. Agreed. Like a mindset, like that sort of a uh, open-minded, like expansive, um, like 
yeah inclusive all the all the different people i definitely encourage people to uh look up the 10 um i guess principles. They're, and principles. and like this summer uh in a couple weeks we're gonna have the first online multiverse burning man i don't know if you're tuned into that at all or if you want to get into that right now but like um there's going to be eight officially sanctioned virtual burning man environments to overcome the covid uh cancellation of the black rock desert gathering but um hopefully people who have never made it to black rock desert or you know i've never made it to anything burning man culture will just be able to do so from their computers and so it won't be the same but on some level the 10 principles will be operating and people will be able to see art and interact with other people and experiment with what this is like without having to, you know, pack up the vehicle and drive all the way out to the desert. I like it. I will definitely be tuning in. <laughs> that sounds great. Um, okay. I want to dive into a couple questions I got here for you. Now, the first question is this. If you could go back to, uh, you know, when you were younger, like if you could go back in time and give yourself advice, I'm thinking when you're, you know, between like seven and 15 years old. Okay. What would you tell little Frank? Oh, man. Thanks. Well, Frank, you're doing great. Don't worry about the stuff you worry about because it's not gonna really matter (laughs) (laughs) um and be kind um follow the joy um oh man be kind follow the joy keep reading like read as much as you can and then if there's something that you want to do and there's something in the way of doing it ask why that's there and what do you need to do to overcome it and then do that and keep going forward until you make that thing that you want to have happen happen Mm, i like that that's good advice Thanks, man. That's a fun exercise. <laughs> nice. Um, okay, here, next question. Uh, what do you want to see come into reality in five years? And this can be on a personal level or a community level or uh, in a, on a global scale. Five years. Shoot, man. Okay. This is where it gets a little esoteric as well, but I really, you know, like you were talking about art coming through us and us being stewards of art and that every human is capable of creating something and sharing it with people. Like I think that these are just a moment, like Burning Man kind of illustrates this, that like our presence creates a moment And if we share that presence with someone else, that can be a gift when we're just fully present. And so becoming aware of like how we show up and how that shapes a moment and shapes a shared reality is I think a big part of my progress 
and beekeeping actually shows you that immediately that like when you show up to the beehive stressed they're gonna slow you down sting you and be like calm down (laughs) (laughs) but when you show up like calm and ready to work with them they'll like let you open up their house and put your hands in their hive without gloves on you know if you're calm enough so um i feel like life offers us that opportunity as well to show up and be aware of how we show up and that as we show up focused on creating and sharing positive in a positive way life starts to unfold that in front of us and like a thousand self-limiting beliefs could get in the way of that but if you just come to that moment of presence and know that how you show up affects the reality you create and share with others that can rapidly unfold a better life for ourselves and the people we're sharing those moments with. And so like, if in five years, this could be the fundamental philosophy of humanity, I feel like we wouldn't have time to inflict suffering on each other or put up with the like personal wounds of people that, perpetuate systems of suffering wow that was great thanks man yeah I feel like we should just let that one hang there for a second (laughs) that's awesome how much does uh, does that play out in your everyday life with your three wonderful daughters and your wife oh my gosh i mean um Thich Nhat han's artful means uh comment you know like um being in practice in the world with your eyes open is a opportunity for artful means so making decisions that are that balance between seeing the presence and sovereignty of the people you're connecting with and holding your own presence and sovereignty. And like, how do you honor the highest and best for yourself and them? And like this concept of the truth that expands through all realities. And um, sometimes I get triggered. But uh, more and more lately, I've noticed that, like, my children are very forgiving and my wife and I are supporting each other in, like, noticing the deepest levels that we're responding from fear and, and trauma. And rather than carrying that action through that comes from that place, like, supporting each other and hitting the pause button and taking space... And then coming back to the moment with a conscious response rather than an unconscious reaction. Yep. Unconscious reaction. That's totally, uh, well, and I, you know, you said the world that's not burning man is like the default world. And I feel like unconscious reactions are the default, um, reactions and actions that we do in, in life until you, uh, become aware like awareness is like this light that shines on a situation that um until then you're kind of just like clunking around in the dark 
and and like the art right if you were painting a mural and you were like pausing with each stroke and you were like calculating out to the 15th move like what the pros and cons of this stroke versus this stroke where you'd like never get the painting done right but like on some level you trust your body and your vision and this opportunity enough to just like move with the whole thing as if the art is moving you right and so i think like zen and um like every you know in in islam there's this consciousness of submission to the divine that like when you're really in touch with the divine you totally submit and that's like a hard thing for i think me to hear as a westerner but like that sense like surfing a big wave like there are things that you can do on that wave that will be good and there are a lot of things that you could do on that wave that would not be good mm -hmm. so you just kind of like go for it and and trust that your instincts and your consciousness are going to align with the reality you're dealing with and you're going to do your best um and and that's the art that's the zen moment that's both the submissionness and the present the, the submittedness the submission and the presentness yeah that balance um yeah. between like being like yeah leading and being led uh or like forcing and going with the flow yeah, the dance of, of Leela and what is it? Uh, you know, Shakti and Shiva, like the give and the take and the infinite potential, but the one path that does create the reality that was experienced. Yeah, okay, okay, Frank. I think, <laughs> I think we're getting somewhere here. Um, I think this is good. I'm going to label this as good. Now, <laughs> I got one more question in the line of questioning and that is what's your definition of art mm. <sighs> i just want to give a shout out to uh forky from toy story i don't know if you've watched that short on disney of what is art Ooh, i haven't <laughs> i need to see that <laughs> it's silly uh he's a spark who can talk um but it's fun um, but that being said, you know, I think art is that submission and presence and like, what if we can bring art to every moment? And it's like an expression of the heart living from the heart, creating and sharing from the heart, um, without the consciousness of, of self getting in the way, uh, you know, that like through whew, this gets a little tricky but i'm gonna give it a try um through the means of us as individuals things can come into the world that otherwise would not come and so it's like removing that consciousness of self as completely as possible so that those things can come through as purely as possible it's cool that you are saying like s removing the self and then the word consciousness comes up and it's funny that like consciousness if you put that by itself it it is like aliveness you know awakeness act action from you know being on uh and then self is like the individual but then when you put them together self-consciousness is 
is a whole different thing. And then when you put it towards like when you add self-consciousness to any sort of activity, like making art, then it becomes a subtractive element. Like Mm -hmm. when one is self-conscious, they're going to like hold back from their true feelings or their ideas that that come up. The flow is not really going to happen. Yeah. And so in the way of like being an artist and creating uh, and being the steward of creativity, it's like transcending the self is, is a, is a, like an aim. Um, and if you can sustain it, it unlocks capacity that can't otherwise be unlocked. Right. Because, because the self and the self-conscious element is only, it's small. It's like compared to infinity, no matter how good one is or how like powerful one person is, they're still like just nothing. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, art, life. That's what that that's what this podcast is about. I think I think we won the podcast game today. I think <laughs> we nailed it. We nailed it. We're knocking it out of the park. I'm throwing pitches at you and you're standing there at the plate just hitting them out of the park. <laughs> Good. Well, I hope that the listeners uh enjoy it and uh I can't wait to see what people are inspired to share and uh you know what comes out of it because I think that's one of my favorite things about mead making is like it's a form of art that people put in their bodies and in so doing it like changes their experience of reality. Um, and I think, you know, that's the same for your murals, like, and your art that hangs up in our meadery. Like when people see some of those pieces, they just go, Whoa, this is cool. And their whole reality shifts. Hmm. So I feel like art, needs to be shared for it to really um fulfill its promise yeah it's like uh it you know it's part of its destiny without that it's it's just oh it, it's missing the other half of its experience though i do think that like being in touch with the bees and like um getting to a point where i feel like every time i interact with them they're teaching me something um there is a sense of the art of like being with bees just for the sake of being with them. Like not with another human, not for the sake of another human relationship that I have, but for the sake of my relationship with them and nature through them. And so I've sometimes heard of people who just like do art for nature and with nature and it doesn't get consumed by other people. And there's a part of me that thinks that that's pretty beautiful as well. A hundred percent. And there's definitely that side of it. There's like the the actual act of making art is an end in itself. A hundred percent. Yeah. And like what you make for whom you make it, how like if you could make it and burn it and it would be, it would be powerful in in that effect too. So yeah. uh, Yeah, definitely. Um, That is a whole, that we're going to take that to the next podcast because we only have a couple (laughs) minutes here left, but uh where can people try your mead? Where can they connect with you online? Where can they follow you and uh, see what you're doing? 
Thanks. Yeah. Um, we've got www.goldencoastmead.com and kind of two options there. You can sign up at the bottom of our homepage for our newsletter, um, which is a great thing that we love to send out once a week. And it's kind of a playful and fun uh, opportunity to share about the mead world and what we're doing in it. Um, or people can join our mead club where they get a monthly shipment of mead sent from our production facility where we're making mead from organic honey and spring water and uh, all different kinds of creative approaches, but mostly in the dry and refreshing and champagne-like um, varieties. So if people are into champagne and flowers, um, they can sh sign up for a shipment of something like 3 million flower visits per box <laughs> so that you can then drink and have a lot of fun with. Um, so we recommend people sign up for our mead club uh, on our website as well. And then if they just want to try our mead, they can order it online or they can come visit us at our tasting room in Oceanside uh, for pickups right now during COVID time on Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday. And then at our farmer's market locations in San Diego, uh, Saturdays in Poway and Sundays in Hillcrest. Awesome. Yeah. I love it. I, I love your, Thanks, uh, your newsletter. It's awesome. Uh, <laughs> thanks, thanks. Yeah. Uh, okay. We have a very short amount of time here. What is, uh, what's the last piece of wisdom you can leave for the humans? Oh, dude, this wouldn't be real without the love of a friend who created and shared this and then invited, to, invited me to share in it. So I think that's how we chart our path forward is like find the thing that we love and want to make real and share with other people and then figure out how to make that something we can do and, and really share in the world. And if we're all doing that, then we don't have time to make each other suffer. Beautiful. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> oh, Frank, man, I love you. Thank you. Love you too, brother. Thanks for Thanks. coming on. This is great. Thanks for having me and uh, give my best to your beautiful lady. Will do. You do the same. All right, man. Talk to Talk you soon. later. Bye. Cheers. Bye. So that, my friends, was Frank Goldbeck of Golden Coast Meadery. Frank is awesome. He's a good one. He's a good human out there. I'm sure that you are, too. And... Yeah, that was a great interview. I don't know what you thought of it, but I loved it. And I love all these interviews that I'm doing, and this one was really special. So I hope this inspired you to make your own art, your own creativity in whatever way that you do your thing. Uh, definitely reach out to Golden Coast Mead and give it a try. Mead is tasty. It is a really nice, refreshing, beautiful drink. You can taste the flowers. There's a bunch of different varieties that you can go after, and they're all really unique. And if you are in Southern California, in the Oceanside, North County, San Diego area, definitely jump over to the tasting room and see if you can get a hold of some of that. And uh, if you can meet Frank, man, he is a gem. I'll tell you that. And I think that's all I got for today. Definitely reach out and let me know what you're thinking about all these podcasts. Love to hear your thoughts, hear what 
you're working on. I mean, that's the whole point of all this is to inspire each other. Art inspires art. That's the thing about it. That's how it works. So, um, yeah, send me something. Inspire me. (laughs) And with that, get out there and do something creative. Cheers.